Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast in partnership with Lexus. Subscribe now to catch new episodes dropping weekly to your favorite podcast app. When you get out of the London Underground at Bank Station and you emerge at street level, the massive edifice of the Bank of England is on your right-hand side. The imposing granite windowless structure takes up an entire city block, not far from where the Great Fire of London started in Pudding Lane in 1666, just down the road. Turn left into Lothbury Street and soon it becomes Gresham Street, EC1, slap bang in one of the world's most powerful financial centres. Walk 100 metres further down the road and on your left is Investec. A little further down, on the right-hand side, is 91. Until the group's demerger in 2020, it was called Investec Asset Management. Across the road is ICBC Standard Bank, an office of about 140 people, much smaller than it was before the global financial crisis, and a memory of a more ambitious time for banks hungry for global growth. But this story isn't about them. This is a story about building a bank in your home market where few believed it would stand the test of time. They went on acquisition drive after acquisition drive after acquisition drive, buying up businesses in troubled times while competitors had problems of their own. Investec was always buying. It's a story of partnerships and teamwork, of cheeky opportunism, of a very near-death experience, multiple tests of character, the power of steely resolve and luck. There's always luck. This is different, though. This is about making your own luck and having the good sense to recognise opportunities when they come your way. You've also got a far greater chance at luck if you surround yourself with the best possible talent. As the Microsoft founder Bill Gates puts it, the greatest thing you can do for your competitors is to hire poorly. So there's a bit about that as well. Investec and its former in-house asset manager, 91, trace their common heritage back to a small leasing and financing business founded on the corner of Moy and Anderson streets in downtown Johannesburg in the mid-1970s. Back then, they provided loans to professionals like doctors and lawyers and dentists to buy nice cars. They were hustling for business, full of ambition, but without a clear strategy on how to get there. There was no idea, for example, as to how they should try and become the next Goldman Sachs, which they spoke about, but nobody believed would really happen. Stephen Kosseff and Bernard Cantor weren't there at the very start, but they are credited with its enormous growth and global expansion. Everything was going quite swimmingly until the global financial crisis struck in 2008. Hard to believe it's 15 years ago, but suddenly all bets were off. Banks were failing everywhere, the most notable of which were Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. Government stepped in for some, but not for others. The thing about Investec that no one knows, which I want to tell, is that and Stephen and Bernard have never had, they never get credit for it. This is the organization that should have failed in the financial crisis. This was the one bank that got no help from anyone. Trevor Manuel was supportive, but the UK authorities were not supportive. And actually, Stephen managed and Bernard managed and the rest of the Investec team today, they managed it through to a point where they didn't have to do an emergency capital raising, they did nothing. So unlike all the big British names here, 
like RBS and that, which have been recapitalized completely, the same Investec shareholders today own their 91 of their Investec shares, if they held them, and they came through. That, even though the returns may not have been spectacular, the achievement of, of preserving that value and ultimately unlocking it through sheer grit and determination uh, is a story that has been untold. And, and I have had a very, I had a very small role in that, except we, we helped produce cash, which was necessary to keep the ship going. That's Hendrik de Toy, founder and chief executive of 91. Previously, as I said, Investec Asset Management. More about him and the business he built inside Investec later. The early days of the UK expansion were a mix of broad strategic intent coupled with opportunistic growth. It was the early 1990s. South Africa was going through a deeply uneasy political transition and Investec knew it wanted to break into the UK market. The question was how? Here's former CEO Stephen Kosseff. God found me said, Stephen, you know, I've got this opportunity for you. It's owned by Barclays. Will you come to London? So I thought, ach, nothing. I said to Bernard, they want me to go to London. And I could have just as easily said nothing. He said, no, you've got to go. So I said, well, where must I stay? So he says to me, yeah, I know. Holly in Marble Arch is where he stays. My meeting was with the chairman of Barclays, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Buxton, who came from one of the founding families of Barclays. So he says to me, he's going to send me some documents. He says, where are you staying? So I said, the holiday in Marble Arch, the guy introduced me, we were nearly dived under the table. He said to me, Stephen, you know, in future you must get a much better address. But what, what did we know? You know, that was our story. And the timing was good because it was just prior to the referendum. The guys, Barclays guys said, you can buy, we'll do a deal with you if the referendum is a yes vote. If it's a no vote, you're gone. And it, you, know, you just reflect on the whole change in South Africa. I mean, Investec were a little nothing business. We were much smaller than the mainstream banks in the country. We're just trying to eke out a living and all of a sudden the world opened up to us. And that was Madiba and uh, end of apartheid. That referendum Stephen Kosseff refers to was put to white South Africans in 1992 to either vote in support or against F.W. de Klerk's negotiated transition to democracy. 78% supported it, and those negotiations would lead to the 1994 elections. Kosef got his foothold in the United Kingdom, Cantor moved to London with a small team, and nobody was certain they'd make any headway at all. Investec did grow quickly, and it did so via acquisition, about 10 in a decade. Most worked, some didn't. Around the year 2000, it became clear that Investec would need a strong brand identity, something to make it stand out from the rest of the banks in the United Kingdom, of which there were about a thousand at the time. It would need something that would speak to where it came from, but also highlight its out-of-the-ordinary proposition. There was plenty of toing and froing until one day somebody had a bright idea. Let's use a zebra. Yes, a, a zebra. To say the directors had a conniption would probably be understating it. By the way, in Yiddish, a conniption is the equivalent of having a hernia. They weren't delighted. Here's marketing director Abi Mohwatan. We were struggling. There were weeks and weeks and weeks of agency coming up with ideas and nothing, nothing was sticking. Nothing really worked. And the creative director of the agency, you know, in sheer frustration, was just driving in the countryside trying to think about how he's going to crack this brief. Uh, many creative directors will recognize this moment. 
and he saw a zebra on his drive in the field. I mean, this is in the UK. And he was like, oh my God, I have never seen a zebra in the United Kingdom in my life. And it hit him. You know, what if I could use this image of the zebra as part as a central part of our campaign? It's completely out of the ordinary. By that stage, we'd already developed the line. It's something that is distinctive. It will break through. It is an African animal. It's recognized as that in many images across the world. And there we go. We found a distinctive brand mark that was absolutely bang on in representing our brand that is distinctive and out of the ordinary. Yet the founders, well, they're called the founders. They weren't the original founders, but when the bank yep. was created, they were the founders. Bernard Cantor and Stephen Kosseff were appalled by this idea. They objected, they, they pushed back. They said, what are you thinking? The zebra in the bush is lunch. Yes, they were like, give us a carnivore. You know, give us something that eats other animals, that other animals are scared of, which was kind of the natural response that you'd expect from, from business people. But what happened was we launched this in the UK market. And I told you what swung them. We also developed these like little zebra teddy bears. All of a sudden, people started writing to Stephen and to the founders around how much their children and their family loved these little zebra teddies and could they get more? So eventually that's what swung them. I mean, till this day, our zebra teddy bear is one of the most requested items in all the conferences we go to in our gifting cupboard. It's a number one top seller. We should have actually gone into that business of producing some of those and selling them, I tell you. But um, that's what swung them. So sometimes, and I keep saying this, sometimes you just need to understand that there's this fine line between magic and logic that I guess is my job and the team's job to be able to find and just go with it. The zebra did make its first public appearance on a billboard in the year 2000. Investec launched its dual listing on both the London and Johannesburg stock exchanges. There was a carefully placed billboard just inside the bank underground station which read, stripes are in, pinstripes are out. Of course, drawing attention to the zebra and taking the mickey out of the uniform of the City of London, pinstripe suits. Kosef, who would be chief executive of the group for more than three decades and Cantor would become its London-based MD, knew the statistics that most acquisitions globally fail and only a few of those that succeed meet all of their pre-deal expectations. But Kosef was undeterred. There's an old saying, fools go where angels fear to tread. In the case of Investic in the early days, they entered deals nobody else would touch. I think you always have luck. I mean, we started out as Investec, but it was in 1976 that Investec started, we became a bank in 1980. You know, we were outsiders. You know, some people called us cowboys on the hill, that these guys aren't gonna make it. And then, you know, we made a lot of acquisitions that built our scale and our capability. But every now and again, something over there goes wrong for someone else, and we were opportunistic. So I think luck, together with a bit of opportunism, has got us to where we've got to. We bought wealth businesses when people didn't really want wealth businesses. In South Africa, we bought Ferguson's in 96. We bought Car Shepherd in the UK, also around about 96. And then we built ourselves by making acquisitions in the UK into the second biggest wealth manager in the UK. And we've you know, bought a whole lot of other old private client stockbrokers to create the biggest wealth manager in South Africa. So those were opportunistic things that we did over the years. If it's in our patch and life is tough, then it's an opportunity. If it's in your patch and life is running, like now, you know, to try and buy a wealth business in the UK, they're all very highly valued because everyone's chasing them. 
So you've got to sort of go against the flow. In Chinese proverb, crisis also presents opportunity. In a crisis, it's easier to find opportunities. You have to be strong enough to navigate the crisis, but you also have to be brave enough to take advantage of the opportunities. In 2008, in the global financial crisis, Investec was eager for growth and seeking opportunity. Businesses were failing, the environment was toxic, and assets that looked like a good deal one day turned out not to be the next. One of those was called Kensington. The market hated it, and eventually Investec had to throw in the towel on that one. Bernard Cantor, the guy who urged Stephen Kosseff to go to London to ink that first deal with Barclays, was living in the UK at the time of the financial crisis, managing a challenging London business, and decided that they needed to be seen to be in the market. So they decided to sponsor some big sporting events. We were a relatively small bank in the city of London where there were a thousand banks. And let me remind you that there was absolutely no oxygen in the system, no deposits, no interbank funding, no trust of one bank to another, no retail deposits. There was just no institutional support. So there you are, a relatively small bank, although together with Hendricks Business at that time, it was probably in the top 10, believe it or not. But relative to the big city banks, we were just a non-event. Now, how the hell are you going to survive? Well, our training from the, the previous generation was actually what saved us. We always maintained 30 to 35% of our liabilities in cash. And yet that wasn't even good enough because the cash was invested in cash or negotiable instruments, which in theory, historically, you go and present and you get your money immediately. A lot of those didn't work that well. So whilst we thought we had 30 to 35% in cash, we actually didn't. But there were a couple of other things that really helped us. First of all, we had an incredibly strong team. And they had been working on a retail deposit in the private bank before the thing really hit. So we wanted to try and get more retail deposits in. And what they came up with was with a complicated uh, product called the High Five. The High Five was the average of the top five banks that paid the highest rate on, on overnight and term money. So we called it the high five. We took the average and that was uh, the product that they were working on. It was purely coincidental that at the same time, we were offered to sponsor the Derby. And the board said to me, I said, look, I'd like to do it because I think it appeals to the top echelon of, the, of, of English society. And they said to me, look, so don't come to us with your problems. We pay you a lot of money. You don't take those decisions. So I called in one or two experts. I spoke with Raymond, Nick, our marketing guy, who went out to look at it. He said, I cannot believe that we can actually get this asset in this day and age. It's not believable. Because if you're a racing man, you'll know that the Epsom Derby is most probably the greatest race in the world. It attracts 135 to 150,000 people. Everyone walk around their top hats and tails, exactly where we would target. And here was one event in the year, a Friday and a Saturday, a sort of a racing festival where we could spread the name of Investor. And that's what we did. We got it and we sent up a blimp. And off this blimp was hanging this massive Investor high five advert. Now, if people ever question whether they should sponsor the right event, we could watch from the Monday morning watch the deposits 
crawler. It was actually quite incredible. Now, they had started before in a small way, so I don't want to say that that was the only reason, um, but that was one that was one of the real uh, saviors of the retail money started pouring in. At the same time, the government increased the, the, the guarantee on depositors with banks to, I think, about 100,000, so that helped as well. And then we also, we couldn't rely on South Africa, certainly not in BASIC, but there were some institutions in South Africa that liked our paper and were prepared to, and got permission, were prepared to buy some of our, uh, our debtors in our paper. And when you put the three together or the four things together, that is really what saved us through that crisis. It was a, it was a, it was a horrific time. I mean, you know, I used to phone Steve, hey, Steve, I don't know if you're going to make today. So now, Benji, just carry on. Just carry on. We'll get through it. I promise you we'll get through it. Probably one of the most astute observations the team had while sponsoring the Epsom Derby was the late Queen Elizabeth II always carried a race day card exactly the same way. So Investex Boffin set about creating ads for the back of the publication which showcased the zebra and the brand name. If you looked at the layout, you would have thought that somebody had made a mistake. It was off-centre. It didn't make any sense, but the design was made to be showing off the zebra and the logo around the shape of the Queen's gloved hand. And that was the work at the time by the marketing director, Raymond Fanikak. But that wasn't all. Bernard Cantor had more tricks up his sleeve. We became quite familiar with Her Majesty. She was incredible. She really was. There are many stories I can tell you. Some of them are naughtier than others. One naughty story. Come on. Share one naughty story. Okay. Raymond came to me and said, okay, she's agreed. Her Majesty will join you on to hand over the prize this year because it was a centenary, I think. And I said, oh, that's fantastic, Ray. I said, should we go down and have a look? He said, no, 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 no. I'll manage it. It's exactly the same as every other year. I said, no, Ray. She's elderly. I want to see how she's going to get up to the podium. And he said, I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll build a lot of steps. I said, no, you're not going to build a lot of steps. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, let's go and have a look. So we went to Epson on the Thursday before and he built three steps going up. I said, I want two. He said, no, you can't have two because she won't manage it. I said, that's exactly the point, Raymond. She's not going to manage it, and someone's going to help her up. Now, there are 1,000 cameras which are beamed around the world there and then, and as someone bends down to help up, all they're going to see is investec, 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 investec. Because behind the podium, we did a huge amount of that. You know, little things like that. So, of course, she arrived, and I went down, and I held her, held her hand and helped her up, and there was... A thousand cameras around the world going click, 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 click. And they've got huge coverage. You can never, you cannot buy that coverage. It's not humanly possible to buy that, that coverage. That era, though, came to an end in 2018 when Kosef and Cantor retired. It was never going to be easy filling the shoes of the founders who'd run the place with an excruciating attention to detail for four decades. Cape Town-born Sir Bradley Freed, knighted for his services to the Bank of England, was born in Cape Town, studied in the United States and ended up working for the global consultancy McKinsey, which is the first time he met the team that was to take Investec Global. I was invited to uh, speak. McKinsey uh, sent a speaker down to Investec's conference in Sun City in 1990. And I met Bernard Cantor and Stephen Cossip at that time, and I thought two things about them. 
I thought they were the most eminently unconsultable people I'd ever met <laughs> in my entire career. I'd never met people like this. I couldn't believe it. And I thought I've taken this huge journey all the way from New York to South Africa to meet these guys so I could actually consult with them. But they were utterly and eminently unconsultable. But they were the biggest characters and most entrepreneurial, wonderful, values-driven people I'd also ever met. I also met other people along the way. I can remember meeting Hendrik Dutoy, who is a Champions League-level chief executive here in London running 91. But I met him as a younger man then and it was quite evident then that he would be an absolutely superb chief executive. Uh, and a couple of years later, I was going to leave McKinsey to run a big part of a bank in the US and um, uh, Stephen and Bernard said, no, you won't be doing that. You'll be coming to London. And I did that with great excitement because dealing with them was an absolute joy. And I worked with them from 1999 to 2010. Sir Bradley Freed, or Bradley from Cape Town, was chief executive at Investec Bank in London for about a decade and worked with the founders to stabilise it in the early stages of the global financial crisis. And when the UK government asked for help unwinding some of the massive structures that had contributed to the meltdown in the Western world, Bradley Freed volunteered his services to the UK Treasury and was seconded there. Then, during that time, he responded to an advert to serve on the board of the Bank of England, or as they call it, the court of the Bank of England. He got that job and in 2017 was made its chairman, a role that would see him help one of the world's most influential central banks traverse multiple crises, including Brexit, Britain's decision to leave the European Union, right up until mid-2022 when his term came to an end and he was knighted. Since the demerger in 2018, Hendrik de Toy runs the separately listed 91, and the bank is run by the former Investec board chairman, Fani Titi, who chose to make the transition from non-executive to executive. For de Toy, there was no major change in the day-to-day. The asset management business operated independently within Investec, and now, for the first time since he founded it 30 years ago, was free to pursue its own ambitions. For Fani Titi, chief executive at the bank, filling the shoes of the founders is a big deal, but he's got a fundamentally different approach to the way in which it should be done. While Cantor and Kosev loved the cut and thrust of working on the floor, the gut instinct, the experience, Titi, without erasing what makes the group unique, is bringing a new formality to the business, filling in some of the gaps which the founders know how to navigate instinctively, but perhaps the successors need just a bit more structure. I suppose as you have the privilege to lead the business, you always think back at what the previous generations have had as a vision for the business. And the responsibility is for us to leave this business in an even better position when our time comes to uh, hand it over to the next generation. That investor will always have a distinctive smell There will be this sense of magic. There will be this sense of out of the ordinary. And that really is our responsibility as the current leadership to continue this business and its uniqueness. 
The culture, as the Financial Times described it, now is one in which TT says he tries to enrol colleagues in shared strategy. While Kosef was notorious for knowing what was happening everywhere in the business all the time, TT is eager to decentralise. It trimmed back staff in London, closed its Australian business and shut down its click-and-invest robo-advisor service, perhaps a little bit ahead of its time from a client perspective. While TT runs the global operation out of Johannesburg, head of strategy in London, Mark Kahn, is worried now about how to ensure that there's an element of the original genius. And Kosef's favourite saying, we break China for the client, making sure that that is preserved while also modernising and systemising the business more. It's a delicate balancing act, says Kahn, to get the mix just right. It is difficult for other companies to copy. People call it the culture. They talk about it being out of the ordinary or entrepreneurial or kind of this freedom to operate or it's like having my own business inside the company. And it, it really is a strategy. And the internal cultural experience has to match that offering to clients. And so people in Investec are obsessed with this thing called the culture. But it is important to see it as a strategy. Where does it go to from here then? Because now the founders are gone. The moment the founders go, places tend to get quite grown up. Adult supervision comes in and they start running the place differently. Doesn't it just become a big business in a big environment and the bureaucracy sets in and actually you lose the essence of what made it great in the first place? That does occur to companies, you know, post the founder transition, they often either break up and, you know, we have had the listing off of, of investing asset management, so that was actually typical of, of, of post-founder. Also, they tend to descend into early stage bureaucracy because what comes in is all the professionals and the, you know, the technocrats and bureaucrats who then say, well, the sort of wildness of the early entrepreneurial years need to be disciplined now into high control mechanisms. And the kind of control function then dominates the entrepreneurial revenue writing function. That's a typical outcome mm. of, of, of a corporate life cycle. So we, that is a danger to Investec, and we've been very conscious of that uh, over the last four years, and we've worked extremely hard at the leadership level to what I call walk the tightrope, which is to balance improving our controls and discipline, which is very important, but at the same time not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There is something in that founder culture that entrepreneurial agility that is core to this differentiator that I mentioned earlier, and if we lose that, we will then just become a product or price play in the market and we are likely to reduce our ability to compete. And that does happen to companies as well. The future is to walk the tightrope and balance improving discipline, control, risk conscious activity. We absolutely do want to increase that capability, but not at the expense of that strategic differentiator that I've explained, which is that ability to be loose, agile, and a real partner to the client in the form of a financial services house, not a bank or wealth manager that claims in its advertising collateral to be a business partner. But that was the purpose of the Zebra, right? The purpose of the Zebra was differentiation. The city of London's full of lions and keys and padlocks and bars and mighty things. You chose, you chose lunch. <laughs> you may not know this, but the zebra was initially rejected by the founders. I mean, they looked at this, they were like, are you joking? A zebra, really, you know? So the initial reaction to it was, was that it wasn't us. Thankfully, you know, you know we, we believed in what the, uh, uh, the marketing people were saying at the time. We gave it a go. And to be honest, it's, I think a lot of luck was involved because it's turned out to be 
fantastic. It, it really is very different. Out of Investec and back on Gresham Street as you leave number 30 and the trademark zebra in reception to the equally plush head office of 91 at 55 Gresham Street. In sharp contrast to Investec, which grew quickly through acquisition following its arrival in London, Hendrik de Toy, its founding chief executive, has been deliberate about growing organically and has no plans to change that ever. Before we tell the remarkable story of 91, we do need to settle a little something up front. Why was it that Hendrik de Toy, a respected Cape Town-based analyst working for Old Mutual, rebuffed effort after effort after effort by Investec to hire him for as long as, some of the stories say, a year. Did Bernard Cantor really spend most Thursday evenings, at least once a month during that year, waiting for a young Hendrik de Toy to emerge from the surf and persistently cajole him to join? Urban legends go out of proportion. I am actually a very bad surfer. I used to have a paddle ski. I learned to surf when my kid was, uh, my son was starting to surf, but I played a lot of touch rugby on Camps Bay Beach. And actually we met at the restaurant across from where the touch rugby game is that, that I helped start, which is still going on. That's Hendrik's version of events. Cantor, however, is not letting go of his version. He puts the surfing around one of the False Bay surfing spots. He doesn't remember exactly which one. It's just too good a legend to not share. I went to introduce myself to Hendrik, and he said, yeah, how can I help you? I said, well, we really think you're ideal for investing. He says, who's investing? So I, and he said, no, no, okay, thank you very much. It's very kind of you, but uh, I'm not ready yet. I said, okay, I'll be back next month, don't worry. And the next month I went back and said, are you back again? I said, yes, I'm back again. And he said, no, uh, you know, I, I don't think you're of the size you're in Johannesburg. I said, Hendrik, it's the right thing for you now. Um, to get stuck in a large institution is not for you, and you know it. He said, yes, but I don't think you people are right. I said, okay, I'll be back next month. Next month I went back, and that's how it went on for a year. And eventually I had to make one major concession, which I had to get permission from Ian and Stephen first, was that he would not operate from Johannesburg. That's probably the biggest mistake we ever made on one hand. On the other hand, Look what he's built. The man is incredible. Why so, do you describe it as a mistake? We were trying to protect our culture, and we were yeah. afraid that he would build a subculture, and that would be a mandate for everyone else in the business to do the same. Now, those are the things that you sort of got to worry about, the unintended consequences of when you make concessions like that. But it turned out fantastic and even better for him. Now, he's built a huge business. Then when we went to London, he was furious with me because he'd heard that uh, we were pursuing another bank that had an asset management business. He said, how dare you go and buy that without talking? He said, Henry, that's a break. We've just started talking, you know, relax. And the time comes, uh, there's a place called Guinness Mon, um, and they had a, quite an attractive asset management business. But when the time comes, we will involve you. And, of course, we involved him. He's built this enormous offshore business. Hey, he's smart. He's a good guy. He's smart, incredibly strong values, a brilliant leader. That was a long time ago, and regardless of precisely how it played out, three decades have passed since then. Coming up on Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast. You can train people to accept an ecosystem or the way it works. You can't change the person. You've got to have enough with chutzpah. You can develop people, but you can't change them. 
What defines genius? A brilliant mind? Unsurpassed ambition? Perhaps Lexus believes it's about something different. Authenticity. This lies in the ability to follow that one thing that drives you, that one true part of who you are. That is the root of genius. And that's the authenticity you experience when you're behind the wheel of a Lexus. It's just one way that Lexus makes luxury personal. Book a test drive at your nearest Lexus dealer and experience amazing. And if you want to see how I experienced amazing with the brand new Lexus RX350 recently, click on the link in the podcast blurb. So let me take you upstairs to what must be one of the world's more spectacular staff canteens. If you can call it that, maybe it's a staff dining room. Their magnificent city views over the whole of London. It unfolds beyond the enormous windows. From the roof terrace, you look down on what admittedly is a nicer roof terrace than 91's, down to Investec. Well, anyway, that's a distraction. Back to what really matters. Hendrik de Toy concedes Bernard Cantor's persistence is what paid off. When you see an exceptional talent, you must make space in a business. You cannot wait for the time because they move on. I'll never forget when Investec made that ill-advised acquisition of Fetcher. The strategy head of Fetcher was a guy called John Green. I went to have a conversation along with the Investec team and I saw there was one guy in Fetcher who knew what he was doing. Kim McFarlane and I, or very shortly afterwards, invited John to come present the business to us and literally on the spot started trying to recruit him long before the deal was over. And John today is our chief commercial officer, played a major role in our success, and so many other people. Whether it's out of university, I think it's Masa Yoshi's son from SoftBank, is I said to him, why did you invest in Alibaba? He said, I wanted to invest in China and I found a guy with bright eyes. That's Jack Ma. If you see the bright eyes, if you see the, the different attitude, make space. Ordinary recruiting can never have that same impact. And often not on the first round. You get to know them, you see them in the industry, and at some point the moment is right and you're open. But recruitment is a constant job, and that's where most businesses fail is they not engaging with a talent that can make the real difference. That takes a lot of courage though, doesn't it? I mean, because you're bringing in people who often are not linear careerists. They are often very different. They wouldn't fit in any normal corporate box. And as a business grows, it becomes more and more difficult to do that because the business becomes more organized. And if I look at our success stories, very few of them. Can you put Gail Daniel in a box? You didn't want you to. Put, you, you no, didn't, I didn't want to hire Gail because yeah. I thought she was, you know, in the interview, she and I still have an argument. I thought she wasn't dressed formally and she was a student just out of wits playing competitive tennis. Kieran Whelan overruled me. Kieran was working, running the administration for us at that stage. And in typical Investec and also 91 culture, I said I didn't want to hire and Kieran just went off and uh, gave her another job and two, three weeks later came to me and said she should be working as an analyst for you. And uh, you know what? That's how we work. But we isn't, isn't that really important to have a culture that enables that sort of activity where in many places Kieran William would have been admonished or disciplined. Right. He saw something that you didn't see at that point and said, you'll come around. I mean, that's, that's, that's a very key part of our culture. I believe in strong leadership from the top as well. But you've got to be open and two-way communication. I mean, there is Nazmira walking past Nazmira Mula, one of our most successful 
and most relevant investment capabilities today is our Africa infrastructure credit mm. impact investing capability. She wanted to bring that into our business. Entire senior management said no probably three or four times to her. She kept coming and said this is something we're going to need. And eventually we took it to now, you know, a decade later, it's really helpful. My colleagues, they have strong opinions, they take responsibility. We ask for forgiveness, not permission in this firm. There are only a few hard strategic parameters that you don't cross and people know what they are. For example, ethics is not negotiable. But in between, business is a consistent negotiation. And if you understand that, you can really optimize and grow. And I, and I think most dynamic businesses are a function of collective creativity as opposed to individual creativity because that borders onto top-down directionalism. And even the military, although it's a top-down organization, most armies have a doctrine that the person close to the action is entitled to overrule an order if he sees the situation on the ground differently. And I think that's really key. Stephen Kossip, I remember him once saying to me that it's okay to make mistakes. And I said, but Vestic is a brutal place. It's a tough place. It's a demanding place. He said, yeah, no, just don't make the same mistake twice. And as long as you made the mistake with the best intentions for the business, that's okay. Learn from it and move on. Yeah, exactly. I will tell the story of Coca-Cola, the guy who was responsible for the biggest marketing disaster in Coke, was promoted to being CEO. You know, remember New Coke? Yes, changed the recipe. But the guy was gutsy enough to try. And uh, he was the son of a Cuban refugee. He had guts and eventually got it done. And I think in our business, the same thing. You get encouraged to go out to try. We are risk takers. We take risk on behalf of clients. If we become administrators, then we should earn passive fees. How do you train people who are untrainable? How do you not train the chutzpah out of them? You can train people to accept an ecosystem or the way it works. You can't change the person. So you've got to have enough with chutzpah. You've got to have enough with detailed, diligent approach to life. And you have to balance. So the answer is in balance. But you can develop people, but you can't change them. People also need to make a choice about the jobs they want to do. So one of the things that really helpful at 91 over time, we've been able to clarify our proposition to people who join us. And therefore, they could reject it. So sometimes when I see senior people at the end of a long interview process, I don't assess them. I ask them to assess us. And if I see there's a disconnect, I say, it's fantastic. You could be a friend of ours outside. But actually, you know what? It's not going to work here and allow them to say the same to us. So we measure people on only two axes. Results, which if you're in investment management, you can't escape it. Investment results are there. The lawyer doesn't get measured the way a fund manager gets measured or the creative person. And the other one is relationships. You don't get fired here for results unless you repeat bad results or you break the rules of the process you agreed to play by. But for relationships, if you can't get along with your colleagues, you can't get along with the stakeholders outside, and you disappoint them through bad behavior, then actually you won't last long. I was chatting to Sir Bradley Freed, the former governor, the chairman of the board of the Bank of England, and he said Bernard Cantor and Stephen Kossif were unconsultable. The culture of Investec and then Investec Asset Management, now 91, stems from that ability to be very different and very entrepreneurial, 
and sometimes a little bit wild. There was massive resistance. We don't look at others. We develop the business, and that's a deep belief. We develop it. We do it our way. If you, through first principles, think what you do, and you're, instead of copying someone else, you truly believe it. Had we listened at that stage to Bradley's speech, which was all about return on equity and about not becoming too capital heavy, I think investing could have been an even more valuable base. So, and it's a well-deserved knighthood, by the way, because Bradley served this community. He was on the FCA's board or predecessor, the FSA, after a successful career in the city. Um, and, of course, the McKinsey career. So, you know, we're very proud. And as a, as a South African Cape Town boy, we used to go and have Latin quizzes. And the Westerford guys were all yeah. very clever. And, and he and John McNabb were at the same time in, in Westerford. So, you know, guys from South Africa can do things. It's so good to see. I mean, he then said he spotted you back then and said, you know, this guy's got talent, this guy's got skill. He described you. He didn't use the term rock star, but he said that you are a leading CEO in the city of London, which is a nice accolade from somebody who has risen through the top. He came in the same way as you were hired. Um, Stephen Kossif approached him to run Investec out of the United States. He heard he was going to join an American bank. He said, nah, don't do that. Come over here. Yeah, no, and, and again, that was a, another Bernard and Stephen hire that was taking a slightly different angle to it. And I think businesses need character. So what we're saying is we're a team business. I mean, particularly investment management is a team sport. It's not an individual sport because you want to create sustainable investment returns over time, which means the team does evolve and does change. You've got to populate the team with game changers and people who can score when necessary and who can win. When you started out, yeah. you looked at the pool of potential money to invest in South Africa and you went, that's nice, it's never going to be enough. You globalized really early in the process. Yeah. It was a deliberate strategy. Yes, yes. And, and, and it was a deliberate strategy from a kind of people we hired. We said, we want to do something unique. And what I'm really proud of today is we're still the only business from a developing country, investment management, that has largely organically evolved. Now, we are not at the top of the Premier League. There are much bigger and, and older businesses ahead of us. If you come to London, you ask them five names or maybe ten names, ours will be known. And... The next step is to try and do the same thing in the United States. That was the exciting path we set ourselves. And it wasn't chasing money. It wasn't a comfortable life. It was about learning and enjoying to participate in a fascinating industry. We are paid to think about the world, look at the world, and ultimately invest capital in such a way that our clients are better off. And that is actually a fantastic fantastic mission. There is one thing that differentiates 91 from most of its global rivals. Detoya is absolutely unshakable in his view that the firm will grow slowly rather than take on the high stakes game of buying out rivals. In many industries acquisitions work well. In our business which is the quintessential people's business, acquisitions create uncertainty. They can accelerate growth. That you can look good for five years. If you have short leadership horizons, then of course you can do these things because you'll, you'll look good for a few years and who cares what happens afterwards. You can't break and put together cultures on a consistent basis. Now, Investec itself, for example, had a patchy acquisition record, some very good, some bad. Uh, observed that, but 
I also observe the capital drag that comes afterwards. But that is in a capital-intensive business. In a capital-like business, we want people to be owners, and that's why the demergers work for us. We want people to take a long view and own the outcomes. Now, it is far cheaper to bet on talent and far more enjoyable because in the end, you have a sense of real achievement. It's the difference between flying over Everest in a helicopter or climbing it yourself. And I think part of it is also the process. And that means you sometimes tolerate lower growth. Talking about Bradley Freed, when he was here in the Investec in the early 2000s, people kept asking, why aren't you growing? He said, no, we're building a base in London. We will make profit. We're not going to cost anything, but we're building a base to grow from. That means you've got to reinvest very heavily. And the profit growth only started in a serious way after the financial crisis. Why can a tech guy make no profit forever and grow his business and we just have to kind of satisfy shareholders? So when shareholders buy into 91, no, they, they know they're buying in next to a management team, which is more committed than them, has a very long-term horizon, way beyond my personal career horizon or any of the current senior leaders and that business will still be there. Now, if I look at the examples in the U.S., Wellington, Capital Group, those guys have been around for 100, almost 100 years, some of them over 100 years, and they're doing exceptionally well, but they're running at their pace. The world is becoming increasingly disrupted, new players in it. There's a big generational switch in terms of attitudes towards the way parents did things and Generation Z. Are these businesses that you're building, are they relevant? I think businesses must adjust. Times change and we must change with the times. So I think businesses mustn't stay exactly the same. But if you do something which is sensible, which has a place, it fulfills a fundamental societal need. God forbid you give the savings of the nation to the crypto kids. So we will be uh, making sensible decisions along with other great firms in a way where the technology will change. Maybe your, your administrative arrangements will be much better with tokens or something. Maybe the administration will be you know, a, a fraction of the cost that we have today. That, that will come. Maybe AI will play a much bigger role, bigger role in decision making. But in the end, the fundamental service we provide is a very sensible service in a world where capital markets exist. Once capital markets deprofessionalize, which they almost did with Robin Hood, and look yes. at the consequences. Dreadful. It was a central bank-induced financed risk-taking by unlicensed drivers. Now, that is not productive. So I don't see a problem. What I do see is balance sheet intensive businesses passing more of the work they do, they've integrated in the past to people like us who are focused on our activity so they can focus on their activity of uh, administering and dealing with end clients. There was a time, probably about 12 years ago, it was in a pub in Manchester, there was a row of beers, 20 taps. Seven of them were SAB Miller beers. And I had one beer, stepped out into the street, and there was a Nando's down the road, and a Bidvest food services yes. truck came trundling past. And there was a moment, and I thought to myself, this is astonishing. And then in London, could have had exactly the same experience because it would have been a taxi with a zebra on it because there was a huge amount of marketing at the time around Investec and the zebra. You chose to leave the zebra with Investec and to rebrand with 91. We didn't choose. I was the joint chief executive of the Investec group. The rational decision was the B2C business, the one that deals directly with any clients needs to keep the brand. We still have clients who, who sort of talk and reminisce about the zebra 
We are a very different. We're a B2B professional institutional type business. And therefore, it was logical we did it the other way. But a brand refresh or a new name also puts some energy into a business because you've got to get out there and tell your clients. One of the reasons, I think, why our performance in South Africa since 2020 has been relatively exceptional against peers is because we were worried that in our original home market, people would be most confused because their domestic brand is the strongest, which means the, the Sanjeev, Jeremy... Natalie Phillips, Tarbo, those people had to get out and talk to their clients in a way, in a more intense way than ever before. And it worked. So sometimes change is a good thing. As we sit here and look over, you yeah. over your right shoulder, yeah. there's St. Paul's Cathedral, there's yeah. the walkie-talkie yeah. building, there's the Shard down yeah. there. I mean, yeah. you're in the middle of the city of London. 30 years ago, would you believe that this would, no. would happen in no. this way? In 1991, my first job at Investec was to come and sell. They called Confused. So I thought I was starting an asset management business. And then Bernard phoned me one day say, we're issuing this bond for Transnet. We need someone to go to London to help sell it. So I came here and there was this little office here in Farringdon, which was sort of temporarily rented by Ian Cantor's business, but kind of Investec used it because this was the founder's other business. Can I walk past it regularly from the tube station? I get off at Barbican tube station, I walk past and I think, oh, you know, there are two big buildings in Gresham Street occupied by the South people African who came, came here and tried and didn't and refused to go away. And that's the point. Persistency, sheer grit and determination, that refusal to go away. Now, they're not the only South African startups that have those characteristics. You will find many businesses that set out on a mission to conquer the world, and you will find those characteristics present in each and every single one of them. And you'll find more in episodes to come. Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast is proudly brought to you by Lexus. Now available for download on your favorite podcast app. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Another will drop in a week's time. Remember, you can see me experience amazing in the brand new Lexus RX350 by clicking on the link in the blurb of this episode. Go on. You know you want to.